you know, you think about the title of uh, of this lesson, and it may may catch you uh, catch you off guard a little bit. And you know, as Eric said, it's 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 hard even to say those words and think those words, but because that's 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 not a not a typical thought that we might have. But when you think about God, what is the typical posture uh, that you might think God to have? You know, I think a lot of us would would think about you know God sitting. You know, we think about God on on a throne, and so we might we might picture in our minds God sitting uh, on His throne. Uh, there are just a, a couple times in Scripture where we read about uh, the Lord standing. Um, you know, in Second Timothy chapter four, Paul talked about the Lord standing uh, there uh, with him while he was uh, uh, on trial, and so. Uh, you know, so we have a sitting, we have a standing, you know, but when you think about a posture for God, is there in your mind, is there a typical posture uh, for our God? Uh, I don't know if it's a posture, but one of my favorites to think about is in Luke chapter 15 is uh, the parable of the uh, prodigal son and the posture of the father we have there is of a father who was running to his son. A picture of our God, our Father, running to us when we repent. That's that's quite a that's quite a an image to have uh, of our God. Uh, you might you might think of God walking. You know, the Bible says that Enoch walked with God, Noah walked with God, and so you might have a picture of God walking. But of all the postures that you can envision God having, God on His knees, that's. <laughs> That's not one. That's not one that comes to mind. And yet in John chapter 13, you know how the book of John begins. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And that word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And so here's Jesus. Here is Emmanuel. Here is God with us. When we get to John chapter 13, and we see of all people, Jesus, God, getting down on his knees. And what I want us to think about tonight is what was it that drove God? What was it that drove Jesus to his knees? Here is Jesus as Lord. Here's Jesus as God. Here's Jesus. Think about this. Jesus is just ours. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not talking about days and weeks and months anymore. Jesus is just hours away from being betrayed, from being put on trial, from being nailed to that cross. And of all the times in his life, of all of the times in his ministry, now, he gets down on his knees. What was it? What on this occasion of all things, what was it that drove Jesus to his knees? And so I want us to look in John 13. I hope you've got your Bible open tonight because we're just, we're just going to work our way through uh, these verses in John chapter 13. And we're going to look at what drove Jesus to his knees. But and then the second part of the, the lesson tonight is, OK, application time. What is it that should drive us to our knees as we think about uh, how we ought to take these things that we're looking at tonight 
uh, in applying to us. But as we go through John 13 tonight, what I want us to key in on uh, is, is a word that's found multiple times uh, throughout chapter 13, and that's the word know, uh, K-N-O-W, or the past tense, new. Uh, but that's we're going to center in on that word uh, and see some things that what drove Jesus to his knees. The answer is, what did he know? There are some things that Jesus knew. We're going to see three of those things tonight. That three things that Jesus knew. And then there were two things that he wanted his friends to know. So five things in all that we're going to see that drove Jesus to his knees. Three things that he knew, two things he wanted his friends to know, but it's all centered around that word know in John chapter 13. So let's start in chapter 13, verse 1. Bible says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus, here's the word, the first time we see it in this chapter, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. I want you to think about that expression. Jesus in John chapter 13 knew that his time was limited. And the way that it expresses it is, is, is kind of a, a, a unique way to the book of John to express it. In chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. He knew his hour had come. Now, you think about it, you think back into your reading earlier, not just in the Gospels, but earlier in the book of John. And you read in chapter 2 where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. You read in chapter 7, you read in chapter 8, where it says that his hour had not yet come. My hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Now we get to chapter 13, and what do we read? His hour had come. The hour that he said was not coming yet, now we get here, and he says, it has come. Jesus realized that his time was limited. He realized that he was running out of time to teach. I mean, Jesus has spent the last three and a half years of his life teaching, and now he's drawing down to the last moments, even the last minutes of opportunities to teach. And, and so running out of opportunities, running out of time. And, and again, as, as far as, as far as, you know, I can figure he's about 15 hours, maybe from being nailed to the cross. Think about it, 15 hours from the cross. What, what would be on your mind? 15 hours from the cross. He knew his hour had come. And yet 15 hours from the cross, he's getting down on his knees. Why? He knew he didn't have much time left. And so what Jesus was going to do is he was going to use all the time that he could. He was going to use every minute that he could. You know, for us, we might say, well, you know, I've given the last three and a half years to this. I, I have poured my heart into this. And if they don't have it by now, oh, well, good. Oh, well, good enough. But that wasn't Jesus. Jesus said, I don't have many more moments to teach. I need to take this last opportunity to teach them. And, and he realized not just in, in words that he would teach, but he realized the influence that he would have in things that he would do, the impact that he could have in their lives. He knew that time was running out. And he wasn't just going to sit back and go sit in a corner and, 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 and spend time just by himself. He said, I've got to take all of the opportunity I can. I want you to think about that. John chapter 13, we see God on his knees. 
Why is he there? Because chapter 13, verse 1 says he knew his hour had come. What else does Jesus know as we read through chapter 13? You get down to verse 3 and we see that word again. In chapter 13, verse 3, it says Jesus knowing. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Jesus not only knew that his time was limited, he knows that he's got a mission to fulfill. He knew that the Father had given all things, that, that God, his Father, had given him a purpose, had given him a mission to fulfill. And so here he is in the last moments of his, of his life, and he says, I got to fulfill this mission. He recognized. He recognized his divine nature. He knew who he was. He was fully aware of that. And so in effect, as, as a result of that, he realized his divine mission. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't too many weeks before this in Matthew chapter 20, when Jesus well, on that occasion was trying to impress upon his disciples that the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve. He recognized what his mission was on this earth, and he was going to do all that he could, even in these closing moments, to fulfill the mission that God had given to him. So he was not only fully aware of what that mission was, but he was fully determined. I am going to fulfill this. I'm not going to leave anything hanging. I'm not going to leave anything, you know, to, to use a, a term we might use in sports today. Now, I'm not going to leave anything out on the field. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to give everything that I can to this Jesus never lost sight of his mission. I mean, you, you go back, you go back to the, the earliest uh, moments, recordings that we have, you know, of his of his early life. The, you know, we, we have a glimpse uh, into his life when he's 12 years old. And even at 12 years of age, Jesus knew his mission, didn't he? You know, here's here's a 12 year old boy that in essence get, gets lost, gets at least left behind in the city of Jerusalem. Well, where would most 12-year-old boys perhaps go if they were alone in a city? What would most 12-year-old boys do? You know, I, I don't know that 12-year-old boys are a whole lot different today than they were 2,000 years ago. What would a typical 12-year-old boy get, be getting into, you know, when he's all alone in a city? But we know where Jesus was. And we know that when his parents come back to search for him, and, and his mother, his mother comes and says, don't you know that we've sought you anxiously? And it's as if Jesus says to her, you should have known where to find me. Jesus says, don't you know that I, I must be in my father's house? Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? He recognized at an early age what his mission was. And we'll talk about this and hopefully I'll remember to, to mention it when we get down to the application part. But don't we need to help our young people? To know what their mission is, to know what their purpose is, 12-year-old boys and girls, to know what their purpose is in this life. Jesus knew it. And then you fast forward 20, 20, 21 years later, and here he is in the closing moments of his life. From the early moments to the last moments of his life, he says, I've got a mission that's been given to me by my father. And I'm not going to leave that mission unfulfilled. It drives him to his knees there when he's with his disciples. He knew that his father had given him that purpose. So what drives Jesus to his knees? What's, what is God doing on his knees? He knew his time was limited, number one. He knew, number two, that 
he had a mission to fulfill. But keep reading in John chapter 13, and you see that Jesus knew that his friends needed an example. And I want you to think about this. You know, sometimes we learn by words, and sometimes we learn by example. And if, if you go back and think about the times that Jesus's disciples had been following him, we learned that there were multiple occasions where there had been disputes among his disciples about who was going to be the greatest. And, you know, I, I think sometimes we might look back at them and we, we might, you know, just kind of shake our finger at them and say, you know, pity, pity, you know, you shouldn't be doing that and shame on you for, for arguing about who's going to be the greatest. But, you know, sometimes I don't know that maybe we wouldn't do the same if we were there. You know, we, we, we don't know how we would how we would respond and how we would act on those occasions. But but there were at least three occasions and, and, and likely more. There were at least three occasions, especially in the closing weeks of Jesus's life, where his disciples are arguing amongst themselves about who's going to be the greatest. One of those occasions is in Matthew chapter 18, verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and here's what's on their mind. Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What, what a question. Can you imagine having, having the boldness to ask Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you know what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus called a little child to him and set the child in the midst of them. Jesus says, you want to know who's going to be the, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? You've got to be converted and become as this little child. You would think, okay, they've learned the lesson. No, you, you fast forward two chapters. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, uh, James and John's mother, uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons, as she is called in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20, uh, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, uh, asking something from him. And Jesus says to her, what do you wish? In verse 21 of Matthew 20, she says, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and hand and one on the left in your kingdom. Wanting greatness uh, for, uh, for, for, for her sons and, and her sons wanting that greatness for themselves. And you see the, the other 10 and how they responded in verse 24. You, you think they were excited and say, oh, yeah, James and John, yes, they, they, of course they're the greatest. Verse 24 says, when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. It's as if, why didn't we think of this? Or, you know, what, what, what are you doing there? That, that belongs to us. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Amazing. But even after this occasion, and this is the context of the verse we quoted in John 20 and verse 28, where you get to the end of this, of this, uh, this interaction, and Jesus says to them, guys, the Son of Man did not, me, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to, be, uh, but to be served, but to serve. You would think, okay, they've got it. Not going to have this dispute again. No, you, you know, that's not the case. And so you go to Luke chapter 22, and, and I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22 and to see this. Because we now come to at least a third occasion where his, where his disciples, and it says to us in, John, in, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 24, it says, Now there, also, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Here we are again. <laughs> Guys, haven't you learned already? Haven't you learned? No, they hadn't learned. And yet, what I want you to see in Luke 22 
is the context. Where are they having this dispute now about who would be the greatest? This dispute back up just a few verses in Luke 22. This dispute is happening immediately after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being Jesus? Jesus, not, not in some matter of fact kind of way, not just in some, you know, some cold manner. Jesus had to have, this had to have hit him deep when he says, when he takes that bread and he says, this is my body, which is given for you. What? This is my body. Had to hit Jesus when, when he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus, it, it's not just matter of fact, okay, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and here's the bread and here's the cup and here's what you do every first day of the week. It's not just a, a matter. It, it is, this is my body. This is my blood. And immediately after that in verse 24, what are they doing? Back and forth. Who's going to be the greatest? Jesus just talked about his death. He just talked about what, what he was going to go through and what are they concerned about? Here's what I want you to see. In Luke chapter 22, as Jesus begins to respond to them in Luke 22 about who there's going to be the greatest, he says in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise, exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. Now look in verse 27. For who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Hang on. Think about the context. Where are they? They're in the upper room. They are seated at the table. Jesus had just instituted the Lord's Supper. We are in the context of John chapter 13. The disciples had just been disputing about greatness. And Jesus says to them, who is greatest? Somebody who's sitting at the table or the one who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? That's what we say is the one who sits at the table is greater than the one who serves. But look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 27. Yet I am among you as the one who serves. I don't know the exact chronology of the events in the upper room. I don't know exactly where this falls where it, when, when we come into John chapter 13. But perhaps is this not the time when they begin to dispute about greatness that Jesus rises from where he had been at the table, and now he is going over to now take a position of service. Here they are arguing about greatness, and he says, hang on a minute. Who's the greatest? But the one who serves. So come back to John chapter 13. They had been disputing about greatness. Jesus had taught them with words. Jesus had taught them, let, let him who, uh, who, whoever wants to be great among you, let him be servant of all. Jesus had talked, taught them about, about humility. 
that you must be converted to become as a little child. But the words did not seem to be landing. The words did not seem to be grabbing them. And, and so now he was going to teach them with actions. I want you to, I want you to picture this in, in your mind in John 13 and verse 4. They're all sitting there at the table eating. And Jesus rose in verse 4 from supper, laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel. Hang on, Jesus. What are you doing? I want you, I want you to be one of the disciples sitting at the table and you're watching. He, everybody else is sitting down as far as we know. And there's one man who has gotten, okay, where, where's he going? What's he doing? He's walking over. What's he going to do? He took off his, I wonder why he took off his garment. He's putting a towel. What he's putting, he's girding himself with, with a, 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 he's girding himself with a towel. And now he's taking water and he's pouring. Oh, I know. Oh, no, no, no. Jesus, wouldn't you know what Jesus is getting ready to do? He's pouring water into a basin. You know, the custom of that day was that there would, would have been a servant who was there. And the custom of the day, customarily, would have been to have a servant there whose job it was when the, when the individuals came into the room to have supper, that that servant would have washed their feet. But they're in a room that doesn't belong to any of them. And while they had prepared for the supper, they had not prepared to have someone there to wash the feet. And, of course, none of the disciples were going to be the ones who were going to wash their wash the feet. You know, that's, that's, that's a menial task. We're not going to do that. But Jesus, God rises, pours water into a basin, and verse 5 says, begin to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he had girded himself. Can you imagine seeing this? Not just hearing Jesus' words, but seeing it. There, there is an impact that that seeing humility and action can have on us. And no doubt that's what's happening here. But I want you to see the word no here. That's, that's the key word that we're focusing in on. When, when Jesus comes in verse 6 to Simon Peter. Simon Peter says, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus says, what I am doing, you do not understand, but you will know, K-N-O-W. You will know after this. You know the exchange that he has with Peter. You go down to verse 11. In verse 11, it says, for he knew, there's our key word, he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, in verse 12, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord you say, well, because that's who I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet. Guess what, guys? You're arguing about who's the greatest, Luke 22. You're arguing about who's the greatest. We're sitting in this room. You all also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example given you an example. I've taught you with words. And now through my actions, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, verse 16, a servant is not greater than his master. You're not greater than me, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If I, God, will get down and wash and serve who are you not to do the same? Who are you to argue about who is the greatest? And can you imagine, you go back up to verse 11, he knew who would betray him. 
Judas is still in the room. It's, it's not until you get over to, to verse 30 where Judas leaves the room. Judas is still in the room. Jesus washes, his, washes Peter's feet. The one that he's about ready to talk about him denying him three times. But he still washes his feet. He washes Judas's feet. One that he's about to say is going to betray him. Jesus knew what these men were going to do. He knew that all of them would forsake him and flee. He knew they were going to do. If, if you were going to wash Peter's feet, if you, were, if you were going to wash Judas's feet, would you maybe skip over them? Well, I'm not going to wash your feet. Would you skip over them? Would you maybe do a, a half-hearted effort with, with them? Or, uh, you know, how, how, would, how would you wash their feet knowing what they were getting ready to do? How would you wash their feet? And you picture Jesus getting a wire brush out and, and scrubbing their feet. No, you know that's not Jesus. Even those who would do him wrong, he still got down and served them. Why? What drove God to his knees? Number one, he knew his time was limited. Number two, he knew he had a mission to fulfill and he was going to do it all the way to the end. Number three, he knew his friends needed an example and what an example he laid out for them. But number four, there was something that he wanted them to know. And this is when you keep reading, you get down into verse 17 and you see that this key word again. And verse 17, he says, if you know, K-N-O-W, if you know, the, remember what he said? He had said to Peter back up in verse seven, you will know after this. He had said to the disciples in verse 12, do you know what I have done to you? And then he talks to them about serving them. So in verse 17, he says, if you know these things, what? Blessed are you if you do them. Blessed. Same word we read in the Beatitudes. A word that means to be happy. I want you to think about that. It's not just go and serve and do it, and, and I don't care if you like it or not. It's, there's an attitude that we've got to have. There's a heart that we've got to have that's in, involved in this service. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know the joy, the satisfaction that comes from serving. So he says, if you do these things that I have done, blessed you will be. You will be happy. What, what a concept. So here's Jesus down washing all of their feet. Here's Jesus washing Peter's feet. Here's Jesus washing Judas' feet. Do you picture Jesus grumbling as, as maybe we might do? Do you picture Jesus grumbling as he gets to, I can't believe nobody else got down and washed it. Can you picture Jesus pouring water and nobody else decided to do this? I guess I'll have to. Can you pick, you don't picture Jesus doing that, do you? When he's down washing their feet, oh man, your feet stink. Can you picture, you, you don't picture Jesus doing that, do you? Why? What you see is a man who was showing how to find satisfaction, how to find joy in serving others. And it's interesting. He says, blessed are you. What's the next word? If. You do these things. Condition. Jesus's promises. Jesus's blessings. Always are conditional. 
promises of God, the blessings of God, are they're conditioned upon obedience. And Jesus says, guys, stop arguing about who's the greatest. That's not going to bring you happiness. That's not going to bring you joy and satisfaction. That's, that's a human mindset. Get over that. You want to find true happiness? Get down and serve your brethren. That's where it is. Then the final thing that we're going to see as, as far as what drove Jesus to his knees. And then we'll spend the last few minutes of this talking about what should drive us to our knees. But the last time we see the, this word no in this context is, is probably the verse that we know better than any of the other verses in, the, in, in this passage. And that's over in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus wanted all people, not just his disciples here, not just his friends. Jesus wanted all people to know the mark of a true disciple. In verse 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. What's, what's new about it? Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's part of the old law. It's not a, not a brand new concept, but what's new about it? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Here's the new, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Think about that. Gentlemen, here you are arguing about greatness. You want to you know where, where, the real, where it really is? Loving each other, getting down and serving each other. And by this, Jesus says, all will, here's the key word, no. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus, what are you talking about? Jesus is talking about not a, a, an emotional feeling where we just tell somebody, I love you. Jesus is talking about that agape love that is a serving love, is a love that gets up and does something for the benefit of others. John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, let us not love just in, in, in word, but in deed. Not just saying it, not just telling others, sure, you know, I, I love you. John says we need to love each other indeed. John was one of those men sitting there at that table. John was one of those men who saw God get down on his knees. John wrote, God is love. Not just some theoretical thing. John saw it in the upper room. He saw love get down and serve because that's what agape love does. What's the mark of a true disciple? Here are the disciples perhaps thinking the mark of a true disciple is greatness. Whoever's going to be the greatest, that's the greatest disciple or whoever does the most, whoever can say, well, Lord, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this or whoever gives the most money, you know, whoever writes the biggest check or makes the biggest deposit, that's the mark of a true disciple. Jesus says that's not the mark of a true disciple. The mark of a true disciple is one who loves his brethren. And when others see that, so see, not hear, not hear that we love the brethren, but when others see that, then they know you are my disciples. What an amazing concept to see Jesus get down on his. And so you go back into verse one, verse one, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What does that mean in verse 1? He loved them to the end. The rest of the chapter shows us. The rest of the chapter shows us what it means he loved them to the end because agape love gets down and serves. 
Agape love is not something that can be that, that someone can fake. It's not something that can just be fabricated. Agape love is something that's genuine. Jesus loved them to the end by getting down on his knees and serving his friends, serving his brethren. If that's what drove him to his knees. Can I ask you, just for a couple minutes, what should drive us to our knees? Maybe we see God not sitting on his throne, not standing in heaven, not just running and walking. We see God on his knees. If God was driven to his, well, what should drive us to our knees? I would suggest to you that what should drive us to our knees are the same five things in John chapter 13 that drove Jesus to his knees. We ought to be driven to our knees in service to our brethren, knowing that our time is limited. Knowing that we don't have a whole lot of time to influence others. Knowing that, that our time is running out to make a difference in this world. Knowing that our, our life is but a vapor. It appears for a while and vanishes away. If I'm going to say, well, I, you know, I'm going to wait until I've got a, a, you know, a more convenient season, as it were. And I'm going to wait until I have a little bit more time on my hands to, to really get down and to serve my brethren. Well, how do you know that time is going to come? You know, it, our, our, our time on this earth is, is not promised to us. And so because I've got limited time, what do I need to do? I need Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. I need to redeem the time. I need to buy it up. I need to use it wisely. I need to use all the time that I can to help to serve my brethren. I, I, I'm in control of my time. I'm in control of, of what I do with my time. So... With my time being limited, I need to get down on my knees and serve my brethren to do good unto them right now. Not waiting for a more convenient season. What is it that should drive me to my knees? Not just knowing that my time is limited, but the same as Jesus. Knowing that I have a mission to fulfill. Jesus had a mission that was given to him by his father. I've got a mission. And it's the same thing. When Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, wow, that's what we've got to write on our hearts. We've got to be converted, as he says in Matthew 18, verse 4. We've got to have a change of our mind to say, it's not all about being served. I've been given a mission to go and to serve it. And, and that, mission, that mission is twofold. That mission, The mission of a Christian is twofold. It's the mission to go. To go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. To reach out to those who have never heard the gospel and to bring the gospel to them. That's mission number one. But mission number two is to go to those who have heard and obeyed the gospel. To go to my brethren. To go to those individuals who are in the body of Christ with me and to serve them. And, and, and I can do that. I can do that in a variety of ways. I do that in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 by seeing those brethren who have been overtaken in a trespass and doing what I can to gently restore them back to the fold. I do that in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2 by helping to bear one another's burdens, seeing where my brethren are struggling and getting under that burden and, and picking it up with them. I do that in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 by when I have opportunity, as we have opportunity to let us do good unto all men, but 
especially, oh, underscore that word especially, but especially to those of the household of faith. I've got a responsibility to get down on my knees and to serve everyone, but God says there's a special responsibility I've got to my brethren to do good unto them, to recognize that Jesus left this for me to follow. And it's in this same book of Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, where Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use that liberty as an opportunity to do what you want, to fulfill your own fleshly desires, but through love, agape love, he loved them to the end. If you have love for one another, love one another as I have loved you. Through love, serve one another. There's our mission. The mission that God has given to us. And that ought to drive us to our knees. What should drive us to our knees? Knowing that our friends need an example. You know, I, I think a lot of us sometimes... Maybe, maybe having might have the mentality that says, you know, I, I don't see anybody else doing it. You know, nobody else is nobody else is really doing anything, and, and so you know, if 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 I don't see this really being done by the rest of the church, you know, I, I why why should I do it? Instead of looking for others to set the example for us, we ought to be the one that steps out and sets the example for our brethren. Be the first one to go out and to do good. Be the first one to write cards to those in the church. Be the first one to take dinner to those who are in need. Be the first one who's there and visiting those who are troubled and, and in need of, a, of encouragement. Titus chapter 2 and verse 7 says to Christians, you need to be a pattern of good works. Others need to be able to look at you and say, wow, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what good works look like. That's what faith looks like. They need to be able to look at us. Not, not. We, we don't need to be in the camp of blaming other. Well, nobody else is doing anything. Nobody else is serving me. Nobody else is taking care of me. That, that's not what it's about. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, and it depends on what translation you have. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 says, be an example. And some translations say, be an example of the believers. Other translations say being an example to the believers. Well, which is it? Well, it's both. I need to be an example of the believers to the believers. So my responsibility is to do all I can to serve my brethren. And and point on the PowerPoint there just says that Barnabases have a tendency to breed more Barnabases. You know, when, when, when we are served, you know what we tend to do? Oh, wow. Well, I can do that. When others serve us, we tend to turn around, oh, well, maybe I should go and serve somebody else. And so it becomes cyclical. It becomes, it becomes contagious where one Barnabas serves another one and they become a Barnabas. They say, I can, I can do that. And then they serve someone else. And all of a sudden, the whole church becomes one, a, a group of people who are serving each other. And what does Jesus say? By this, all will know that you are my disciples. Not because you say you love one another, but because you serve. You show that you have love for one another. What should drive us to our knees? Wanting our friends to know the joy of serving. Not that we do it, it with grumbling. We don't picture Jesus grumbling. We shouldn't be grumbling as we do it. But to help them to see that when it comes to serving, there's a selfless and a personal and there is an eternal joy in serving. I love what Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 17, where he says, if I... If I'm being poured out on the sacrifice and the service of your faith, if, if I'm going to give my all and be spent and die 
in service of your faith. What does he say in, in that verse? I'm glad and I rejoice. And he says in the next verse, why don't you be glad and rejoice with me? There's, there's gladness, there's joy in serving others. And, and we get to emulate our Savior when we do it. When we esteem others better than ourselves, Philippians chapter 2, we get to take on the mind of Christ. And in so doing, we get to look like Jesus. That ought to bring us joy, to be conformed to his image. You know, sometimes going and serving others, sometimes that helps me more than it helps them. Have you, have you ever noticed that? Have you ever gone to visit somebody? You know, you go and make a hospital visit. You visit somebody in the hospital in order to encourage them and, and build them up. And, you know, sometimes I'll leave a hospital visit or, or a nursing home visit or where I may live one, with, leave one of those visits. And I, I feel encouraged and I wonder, well, I, I don't know if I did them any good, but they sure did me some good. And that wasn't the intent. I, I went there to build them up. Why? Because there is a joy in serving. Oh, that God would help us to see that joy. Not to do this because we have to. Not to, not to get, oh, okay, God, Jesus said I'll have to. No, 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 no. To find the joy and satisfaction to it. Finally, what should drive us to our knees? Wanting all people to know that we are disciples of Christ. Recognizing that actions speak louder than words. Agape love is action-oriented. The golden rule is to do unto others, not when they do unto you, it's not do unto others as they un do unto you. It is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But the first part of that is go and do. Not just speaking the words, but getting involved in the actions of helping brethren. And recognizing that when others see Christ living in us, this is not about us. It's not drawing attention to ourselves. It's not drawing glory to ourselves. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 16. Let your light, your light, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works. It's your light that is shining among men. Then they see your good works. But when they come to glorify somebody, they don't glorify you. That they may see your good, good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That ought to be our goal, is to simply be a conduit, not to draw the attention to ourselves so that others think, wow, what a great Christian that is. If that's our purpose in serving, we fall short. But to help them to see Christ living in us, that they might glorify him and say, I want to be like them so that I can be like Jesus. When you think about the typical posture of God, maybe God on his knees is not the first thing that comes to mind, but may we use John chapter 13 as a motivation, motivation for us that says, if Jesus got down on his knees to serve his brethren, who am I? That I don't need to do the very same thing, knowing my time is limited, knowing I've got a mission given to me by God, and I'm not going to leave it half done. I'm not going to leave anything out on the field. I'm going to serve him the very best that I can, knowing that when I do it, I can provide an example for others to follow, not to bring glory to me, but maybe if I start it, there'll be others in the church that'll say, I can do that. And knowing that when I do it, perhaps they can see the joy of serving. 
and that others outside in the world can come to Christ. May God help us to learn from Jesus, from God in John chapter 13. Thank you very much for being a part of this study tonight. And thank you to Jonathan and Eric for inviting me to be a part of this.